All right. Um, uh, I didn't grade your exams yet. Uh, I'll get to them sometime tomorrow is my, my plan, right? Um, uh, contain your disappointment uh, as best you can. If you'd like to, I'll give you the opportunity to take out your vengeance upon me with these lovely evaluations, right? Um, so I've been evaluating you all semester long. You can have five minutes and evaluate me, I guess. Uh, which, uh, when we'll get to that, we'll do this at the end. Um, we'll go until there's about five minutes left. Uh, we'll go until Robert's tape runs out, and then we'll, we'll cut it there. Um, and then uh, I'll need to get a volunteer to collect the evaluations and take them up to room 204, the division office, and drop them off with the secretary up there. I cannot be in the room while you fill out these evaluations, all right? So we'll have to put somebody who is trustworthy and noble, and I'm sure there's no shortage of people like that in here uh, to take those up there after they're done. Can we get a volunteer? Or we can do it later. Can we, do you think we can find, we can find, yeah, we can find somebody, all right? So, uh, so you'll fill out the evaluation at the end. Uh, you can, he'll have the envelope, you can give them to him, and he'll walk them up, and then I'll see you in lab uh, shortly thereafter. Um, in case I forget to mention, the only thing that I ask on these evaluations is to please be honest, okay? Um, uh, if you have something that you would like to say with regards to what I did like about this class, what I didn't like about the class, you know, I can flip it over in the back of it, it says, you know, room to write things. Those are the most useful things for all of us are the things that you write. The other stuff on the front, the multiple choice things. Ah, you can never say that I never gave you multiple choice, right? Um, the multiple choice things on the front of the evaluations, did you like the textbook? You know, these kinds of uh, things that you know, we really don't have actually less decision-making ability over than you might think. But on the back page where it tells you to write things, uh, we do pay a lot of attention to that. Um, I pay attention to them because I want to become a better instructor. The division dean wants to pay attention to that because she wants to fire me if I'm a lousy instructor, okay? So um, we all pay attention to those things and get various things out of them. That being said, I will ask you again to please be honest with them. If there's something that you liked that I do, please mention that. If there's something that you really don't like that I do, uh, please mention that as well. The only thing that I would, would say in addition to make them honest is to make them useful. Um, saying uh, offer more multiple choice exams is not useful because I'm not going to, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the dean is firmly behind me on that, right? So it's, it's like wasted space. I don't even bother with it. Um, uh, so if you, if you think that there's something, you know, more use of the document scanner, right? Or, or something that you'd like to do me to do on Blackboard that I'm not, okay? Those are the kind of things that are really useful. You know, actually, when you, when you write those comments, give me a course, uh, lead me to a course of action of something that I can actually do, right? That I actually will do that, that you would find useful or helpful for your particular learning style, right? Because everybody has a different one, and I'm trying my best to accommodate all of them at the same time to varying degrees of success, okay? With some of you, I'm absolutely wonderfully successful with that. Uh, with others, I'm not as successful with that, right? So um, if there's anything that I'm doing that is not towards your learning style, let me know, right? And I can try to accommodate that, you know, not for you, but for the next class who's in here who might have a similar learning style to your own. So uh, more about that when we get to it. Um, this lecture is where we separate uh, the ones who um, are going to be mind-blowing biologists and those uh, who might not, I shouldn't say that, aren't going to be, right? Um, this is where things really come together. Okay, when we have these back-to-back these -back lectures, one being aerobic respiration and the other one being photosynthesis, right? Um, in last lecture, we were talking about aerobic respiration. We took those glucose molecules and we tore them apart. We got the energy back out of them. We made a lot of ATP out of it. Remember that? Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so right. Okay, you do remember that. Um, today, we're going to go in the other direction. 
We're going to talk about uh, not how you go from glucose to CO2. We're going to be talking about how you go from CO2 to glucose. Okay? And that reaction is referred to as? Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, right, drudgerously, right? Um, if you look at some of those intermediate chemical products that you go through um, in glycolysis, right, PGAL, pyruvate, these kind of things, oxaloacetate, if you look at the, the intermediate stages of many of the photosynthetic reactions, um, you're going through that whole process, just kind of going through it in reverse. Right, so photosynthesis oftentimes looks like glycolysis getting pushed in the other direction, okay? And if that's the case, right, we actually need to get some energy from somewhere, right, and embed it in those bonds to put those larger, more complex molecules together. And of course, in photosynthesis, we get that energy from the sun, right? Uh, this is, I believe, some sort of artist rendering as opposed to the real thing, but you can see there's a lot of stuff flying out of the sun, okay? Uh, light, energy, electrons, you know, some, some light elements, solar wind, all sorts of radiation and things like that. Um, you know what happens in stars? What do stars actually do? They're, burning gas. They're not combusting, right? It's not, a, it's not a combustion process. What is it? What's going on up there in those stars? That, hot, bright thing, right up, up, if you look up and go outside, it's actually out right now, right? Yeah, the sun, what is it doing? What's actually going on in there, right? Um, it's producing heat, it's producing light. What process actually results in that light and heat being thrown out of the sun? It is fusion, absolutely. You're absolutely right, fusion of nuclei, right? This is a nuclear reaction that's going on. Um, it is not splitting atoms. Okay, um, it is fusing them together, right? So you're taking really, really light atoms and you're fusing them together into larger and larger and larger ones, all right? So, for example, right, this is one of the main types of initial reactions that actually happens in the sun. So here you have a hydrogen atom, here's a hydrogen atom, here's a hydrogen atom, and here's a hydrogen atom. You can take those two hydrogen atoms and put them together under such uh, pressure okay, that those nuclei will actually fuse, okay? And if you take these nuclei and you fuse them together, um, you don't necessarily just add the protons together, you have one proton and another proton, you fuse them together and you get two, right? When you fuse those together, oftentimes these other little energy packets start flying out of it, okay? So when you take hydrogen uh, and hydrogen and fuse it together, you don't get helium right away. You go through intermediate products like um, H2, right? Uh, hydrogen that has a proton and a neutron as opposed to hydrogen that just has a proton, okay? Um, where does that other extra energy go? It flies out in the form of positrons and neutrinos, right? These other subatomic particles that we investigate in like the Large Hadron Collider, for example, right? Seeing what all these variety of subatomic particles are, okay? Um, and we can do that uh, all over the place inside of the sun, making these heavier and heavier nuclear components. We can then take uh, one of these heavy hydrogen atoms and fuse it with another hydrogen, fuse it together, and we actually finally get a point where we do actually make a helium nucleus, okay? So we actually did undergo nuclear chemistry. Now we have another element that we just formed out of fusing hydrogen together. And in this case, this little thing flies off of it right there. That little thing right there is a photon. Okay, so now this is actually electromagnetic radiation that's going to fly out of the sun, that's going to make it to the earth, that we're actually going to be able to potentially capture 
right, via some sort of photosynthetic reaction, okay? And, but it doesn't stop there. We keep fusing these helium atoms together into heavier helium atoms, fusing those heliums together into lithium, carbon, more and more and more until you get up to about iron, okay? Iron is pretty much the heaviest element that you can make in a star, all right? The largest stars in their full, uh, full glory can pretty much make iron, and that's about it, right? Those really, really heavy things, gold, silver, lead, cesium, uranium, those things are not made in the normal processes of star stellar fusion, okay? Um, to get that really, really heavy stuff, all that stuff that is more dense, that has more protons in it than, than iron, um, requires a star going supernova. You know what a supernova is? Supernova, a couple of bad movies called Supernova, right? Yeah, star dies, right? So there's two things going on with a star, all right? So you have all of this, obviously a lot of energy produced by these fusion reactions, a lot of heat coming out of it, right? A lot of force pushing outward from the core of that star where those fusion reactions are going on, okay? So there's a lot of energy pushing out, there's a lot of gravity pulling in, all right? The star is big, it has a lot of mass, Right, so what you see when you look up and you see the star, right, which you shouldn't do for more than a couple seconds at a time, right? I just told my class to go out and burn their eyes out, right? Um, you have all the energy pushing out on the star and all the gravity pulling in. When you start to go through this stellar cycle and you start running out of hydrogen, you start running out of helium, right, the amount of fusion that you have that pushes out starts to wane, okay? And if the amount of energy pushing out starts to wane, then gravity starts to win, right? Same amount of mass, right? You just have less stuff pushing out. And the star will collapse in on itself, right? And all those outer layers of that star will slam into the core, right? And for a very briefest second, you'll have uh, the most hottest, densest thing that exists in the universe, okay? Um, and that's where you get the formation of the things like, well, for example, the bling, right? If you're wearing gold, anybody gold? Gold, any gold today? Am I the only one because I have a job? <laughs> anybody else wearing any gold? Silver. Anybody silver or anything like that? Anything that has a higher um, atomic mass, right, or, or a higher atomic number than iron, right, um, that was generated in the death of a star, okay, in a supernova. Eventually, all this stuff that's flying around condensed, right, into the planets that we have going around our own sun today to give us, you know, this lovely planet with all 92 of the elements, so. Uh, good stuff, good stuff. So as a part of this fusion process that's happening in these stars, occasionally you get these photons that fly out as these byproducts of these nuclear fusion reactions. So this is ultimately the fuel source, right, for all the stuff, right, all the biologically interesting stuff that we're gonna do on the Earth. So all the energy that we're using today on the Earth's surface, any sort of biological organism, initiated with a nuclear fusion reaction in the sun. All right, good? How was, we, we have uh, enough uh, atomic physics for the day? Yes, no? Are you saying that if we were to fly around space and find dead stars that we would just get a big pile of gold or silver? Um, there are big piles of, um, of, usually when that happens, the whole thing will blow up, <coughs> right, and, and, and eject off. But anytime you see large rocky things flying through space, that is the, the byproduct of some sort of stellar explosion from a supernova um, that generated these really, really heavy, heavy elements. Right. Our star is not big enough to generate iron, right? The heaviest elements that our star can make is like carbon, right? It's, it's actually pretty dinky in the, in the grand, grand scheme of things, right? But it's kind of neat, it's kind of neat. So um, I would argue that we are not done with uh, nuclear physics today. We'll come back to some more interesting nuclear physics in a bit. You say the things that happen in stars and in um, linear accelerators and large hadron colliders don't relate to you, right? They absolutely relate to you.
Okay, so when these photons eventually make it in, okay, to the Earth's atmosphere, we have these things in our eyes that can detect some of the wavelengths of them, all right? Rods, cones, these kinds of things. Um, we can only detect a very slim, a very slim range of these photons of light, okay? Um, these photons exist at an enormous amount of energy levels. If this has a lot of energy, right, it's going to have a, be associated with a wavelength. If it has very little energy, it's going to be associated with a different wavelength, okay? The really, really high energy, okay, short wavelength photons that are coming out of the sun, we are going to see as things like purple and blue, okay? So the photons that are coming out of your shirt, right, pretty high energy things. Okay, in the grand scheme of things. There's higher energy, which is actually, you know, a shorter wavelength, things like ultraviolet radiation, X-rays, gamma rays, right, or the ultra, ultra high energy things. Our, our eyes cannot perceive these. Okay, once we get to a, these are the, you know, the, the 50, 100, 200 uh, nanometer wavelength things. When we finally get up to the 400s, then we have the ability to actually perceive these wavelengths. All right, um, and they start with these blues, purples, and things like that. As those photons get, uh, are associated with less and less energy levels, right, the lower energy ones, they tend to go in this direction, right, through the greens, through the yellows, through the oranges, through the reds, and then into the really low energy, really low energy photons, um, the near infrared, infrared microwaves, radio waves, and things like that. Thankfully, radio waves are not these really, really high energy things, right? We'd walk outside and you turn your radio on and you you know, get massively irradiated and things like that. The radio waves that are around us all the time, right? Um, really, really low energy, not very dangerous things. Why can you turn on your microwave and not explode in a, in a ball of cancer or something like that? You know, it's just not that high energy stuff, right? Really low energy stuff. So low energy, you don't even have uh, a mechanism in your eye to actually detect those wavelengths, right? So what you're doing with your rods and your cones and your eyes, right? Um, you have different pigments in, in the back of your eye that are sensitive, or different molecules, I should say, that are sensitive to these wavelengths. When a photon of 550 nanometers hits the back of your eye, right, it triggers a series of reaction that your brain interprets as the color green, okay? So that's kind of the thing that, that's going on there. So of this enormously huge, wide variety of wavelengths of photons that are coming out of the sun, you can perceive this very, very narrow sliver sliver of it, okay? Um, different animals on Earth can perceive different wavelengths, all right? Um, bees can see in the infrared a little bit. If you look at a flower under infrared light, right, and with, with kind of a thing that lets you see infrared radiation off of it, um, the petals of a flower um, kind of look kind of clover leafy like that. They'll all, all four of those petals will have big infrared arrows that point straight into the middle of the flower, right? And you don't see those. Right, uh, but the bee does see those, right? It's like good stuff is right here, fly towards this thing right here in the middle. You know, it's like a landing pad, right, for the bee, right? Um, so you see only a very narrow spectrum of these things. Um, the really, really high energy ones being these purples uh, and blues, the lower energy uh, wavelengths being these reds um, and, the, and these oranges. So if we wanted to have a pigment that captured, okay, a lot of energy that we could do biologically useful stuff, we would want to capture these wavelengths down here, okay? These wavelengths up here, we can capture those and that's fine, right? But it's just not gonna have a lot of energy associated with it. So your shirt is blue, right? Your shirt is down here. Because I can see the blue of your shirt. That means that your shirt is doing a lousy job of absorbing these, okay? All the blue is bouncing off, 
Okay, so you are not absorbing the blue. If your shirt was absorbing blue, would we see it? No, it'd be absorbing it, right? And you'd be getting really, really hot, right? Because you'd be absorbing all of this high energy radiation, which you're not doing, right? Akanksha is wearing all black today, and I am as well, right? Akanksha and I are both absorbing enormous amounts, right, of, of electromagnetic radiation. And you can feel that when you wear a black shirt and you go outside. You wear a black shirt on a sunny day, you go outside, you can feel the heat absorbing into your shirt. Right? Um, as you're absorbing all of these wavelengths. None of these wavelengths are making it out of the pigments in your clothes. You're absorbing all of them and you're, that's being obviously converted into heat. Or if you go outside and you wear white, like if I took this vest off, okay, and I was just wearing the, the white shirt underneath, I would be reflecting all of these wavelengths, okay, and I would not be feeling so, so hot when I went outside, right? I would be reflecting these wavelengths back off into space, okay? So we want to get some plants to absorb these wavelengths down here, okay? We can absorb these and that's fine, they're just not as useful to us because they just don't have as much energy. Uh, now, atoms are weird things, okay? The first person who actually developed a functional working model of atoms that sort of start to look a little bit like what we know of atoms today, okay, with these kind of circular pseudo-planetary orbits around them, was Niels Bohr. Right? He actually came up with a model of the atom that sort of depicted reality in some sort of very simple fundamental way. Right? Um, and if we're talking about electromagnetic radiation and photons and things like that, uh, we need to talk about electrons. Okay? Um, when your shirt is absorbing radiation or not absorbing radiation, it's the electrons that respond. Okay? It's the electrons that absorb those photons. Right? So when you're going outside and wearing a black shirt, Right, and you're absorbing all of this radiation, right? It's the different electrons in a lot of those bonds, okay, in those, in those atoms that are absorbing those photons and those electrons are getting kicked up to higher energy levels, all right? So one of the weird things about, about Niels Bohr and his atomic model, right, there was the big conversation about how if these electrons are spinning around this nucleus, right, why don't they slow down? Why don't they eventually stop? Why don't they fall into the nucleus, right? The nucleus has the positive charge and electrons have the negative charge. Why don't they just slam into each other? Okay, it's like the earth going around the sun. Why doesn't the earth crash into the sun, right? Well, why doesn't the earth crash into the sun? Well, gravity is the, the attractive force, right? So what prevents gravity from, The Earth is always moving perpendicular, right, to the force of gravity at a velocity, right? So the Earth actually is falling into the sun. It's just always out chasing it and always kind of missing it, right? So um, that potential energy of the Earth, if the Earth were come to a complete stop and would stop rotating around the sun, right, it would go straight in. Speak. Isn't it true that the Earth moves from like a centimeter closer to the sun? It, it does. It does, right? Um, it varies in its orbit quite a lot, actually. Quite a lot. All right. Um, so if the Earth loses its potential energy, right, its kinetic energy moving around in this orbit, then it is going to rocket into the sun and gravity is going to subsume it fairly quickly. Um, so when we think about electrons going around this nucleus, right, we kind of have to think about the same thing. What keeps these electrons moving around the nucleus and not crashing into the nucleus because they have this opposite charge, right, is the electron's potential energy. Okay. So if we're going to have those electrons absorbing photons and releasing photons, okay, like we want them to do in photosynthesis, right, then we have to talk about getting those electrons to jump back and forth between their energy levels. If an electron is at a low energy level and it absorbs a photon, it's going to get kicked out to a higher one, right? 
If it loses a photon and kicks a photon off into space, right, then it's going to have to go down to a lower energy level. Okay? So what's interesting about the Bohr model, right, it does some weird things. It stipulates that an electron, and this is based on physical data and observation, an electron actually cannot exist in between energy levels. Okay? Photons of, uh, with a known wavelength are discrete in the energy that they carry, right? If you're going to lose a photon, you're gonna lose it all at once, okay? And the electron is going to transport, or I should say teleport, directly from one energy level to another. You don't do this, right? Electrons do this, but you don't, okay? This uh, transportation between one energy level and another is referred to as a quantum leap as opposed to the Scott Bakula show, right, called Quantum Leap. An actual Quantum Leap is that, that energy level bouncing back and forth between energy levels, all right? So here we have our ground state, right, the lowest state of an electron energy that can be. And it's not that, you know, at higher energy levels, the electron has more energy in a nice linear trend. It goes in a stair-step fashion, okay? So an electron can exist at that energy level or that one or that one or that one. It can't exist at states in between. It's not that it doesn't, it's that it can't, okay? And so for an electron to get from there to there or from there to there, right, it can't go through the points in between. It disappears from one energy level and it reappears in another, all right? Um, if you go to Tyson's Corner, right, you have to go through every point in between, right? Yeah. You do, right? Your electrons do not, all right? But you do. All right. So... Uh, if we have an atom here, a nice Niels Bohr atom, okay, and here's their nucleus, and here are these energy levels that exist around it, right? If a photon is absorbed, okay, then that electron is going to bounce out to a higher energy state. Believe me, I'm going somewhere with this. I do realize it's a biology class, right? Likewise, if the electron is going to lose energy, it's going to go from this higher up energy state down back to the lower energy state, and a photon is going to be emitted, Okay, your shirt is emitting photons, right? And the blue wavelength. So where is that photon originating from that I'm seeing is blue? Right there, the light. Okay, so the light is emitting a lot of different wavelengths. How do we know? What color is it? It's white, okay? So a lot of different wavelengths coming out of the light. They're hitting your shirt, okay? and the pigments in your shirt are absorbing a lot of them, okay? Um, what, it's not a, what is happening then, right, all of these electrons in your shirt are going up to these higher energy levels that they're absorbing as photons, okay? Some of them are staying there. Some of them are not, okay? Some of those pigments, their electrons are not preferred in that particular energetic state. The electrons, after they're excited by all the wavelengths of light, are falling back down to lower energy levels, and they are emitting a wavelength of approximately 450 nanometers. Okay, that is the energy level of the electrons in the quantum state energy decrease coming out of the pigments in your shirt. With my white, right, all of my electrons are bumping up to higher energy levels and they're kicking off all of the photons at a variety of wavelengths. With the black vest, right, um, this is why I wore this today, it works very well. 
represent the extremes, right? Um, all of the, these pigments in my vest are absorbing these wavelengths out of this light and they're holding on to all of them. None of them are getting kicked back out at a wavelength, all right? So there's this relationship between how much energy is being gained and lost in these quantum levels, right? And what color you actually perceive of the light coming out of that thing, okay? So what you can do, right? Um, you can do what's called spectroscopy, okay? And uh, um, Newton was one of the first people to actually uh, stumble across this. If you have a light source, right, um, you can sort of focus, polarize that light um, in a thing we call the collimating lens, right? And you can show that light through a prism and you can split that light apart into a lot of different wavelengths, okay? That you can shine on the wall. You can sort of diffract them based on their energy level and you get this nice orderly pattern going from violet up to red. Anybody know who Roy G. Biv is? Roy G. Biv? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, Roy G. Biv, right? It's the, the order of, of colors as you go from the, uh, from the low energy to the high energy. All right. Um, so when we look at the, for example, if we take a light, right, and we shine it at hydrogen, just something that is pure hydrogen and nothing else in it, right, we can look at and we can see, okay, what wavelengths of light are coming back out of it after all of its electrons absorb. And you get a pattern that looks like this. Okay, so you get a bunch of little lines kind of close together and then one of them out here and then another one out here. You can do the same thing for sodium, okay, and see what energies are associated with the electrons as they bounce back and forth between energy levels for sodium. That is very, very different from hydrogen, okay? Or we can look at neon and see where it energy levels are, right, um, that it releases from its photons when those electrons bounce back and forth between energy levels, right? Um, so this is called spectroscopy. What you can do, right, um, you soon discover that every one of the elements in the periodic table has a very distinctive set of lines that represent what it's made of. So you can take a spectroscopy machine, you can point it at the sun, right, you can find out where all the little lines are, and you can then say exactly what chemical elements are actually in that star. Right? And using that, we can tell how old the sun is. If the sun has a lot of carbon in it, we know that it's been around for a very long time, right? There are a lot of heavy elements in it, and we might not have such a long time to go, right? If we find out that it has enormous amounts of hydrogen in it, well, then we're probably all good. There's still a lot of hydrogen left, and it's still going to be combusting for a while, I should say, fusing for a while. Neat. So these things are strange. Right, um, and the hope was that once we started to investigate um, these quantum states of electrons that we would find out that they're actually hogwash because they don't make any sense whatsoever. Right, but it turns out that everything that we do tends to show us that uh, quantum weirdness, as Richard Feynman used to put it, um, is actually correct, these quantum leaps. Um, if, if there can be a photon of this energy level and a photon of this energy level, why is there nothing in between? Right, electrons can't exist at that energy state. Right? They go directly from there to there and don't go through any space in between. They disappear at one energy level and they reappear at another, which is strange because you don't do that. So uh, nobody understands quantum mechanics, how that actually happens, how quantum teleportation happens and things like that. Um, so don't even bother asking how can it be like that because nobody actually knows how it can be like that. It just seems to be the way that it is, right? And what quantum electrodynamics is, um, as we know it to be, really just is uh, the set of rules that govern what electrons and protons and neutrons do um, based on observation alone. And we kind of have to bend our view of reality to fit the weird things that happen in particle accelerators like this, right? So things that happen at subatomic levels aren't the same as things that happens on superatomic levels. They're completely different things. 
So what we're going to do with photosynthesis, right, uh, we're going to look at these plants and these other things that contain chloroplasts, and we're going to try to understand how actually they do this. How do they actually take these photons of energy, okay, that are blowing out of the sun at a bunch of different wavelengths, and how do they actually convert them into chemical bond energy? Okay, because that's what we want to do. We want to take some carbon dioxide, okay, and we want to inject some chemical bond energy into it from the photons and put these things together into these big sugar molecules, okay? And the things that we use to do that, or I should say the things that chloroplasts use to do that, are pigments, like chlorophyll, for example, is a good example of one. We can put um, some chlorophyll into a spectrophotometer and shine a bunch of wavelengths of light at it, and we can see exactly and specifically what wavelengths of light are absorbed by the chlorophyll molecule, okay? This is what the chlorophyll molecule looks like, kind of a big tennis racket looking thing, right? Um, with a magnesium atom in the middle, which is kind of wonky. What's that doing there? Who knows, but it works, right? Um, your uh, hemoglobin that you use to carry oxygen around your body, right? Yeah. Yes, you know of this thing? It's kind of red, right? Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing, but it has iron in the middle of it instead of magnesium. That's kind of neat. All right, um, and a long kind of carbon-carbon chain that, that comes off the bottom of it, okay? So um, this is the thing that's going to be absorbing these photons out of the atmosphere, all right? Um, if we put these into a spectrophotometer and do an investigation to see what wavelengths of light chlorophyll absorbs radiation and which wavelengths it doesn't, we get a pattern that looks like this. Chlorophyll does a very good job of absorbing blues and purples, okay? Which is good because that's where the energy is, right? Those are the higher, highest energy photons um, that we can actually perceive that are out there, okay? Um, chlorophyll actually is able to absorb some yellows and some oranges and things like that, okay? The one set of wavelengths that chlorophyll has a lousy job of absorbing is green. All right, so you go outside and you look at a bunch of trees and you see the green. You don't see the orange, you don't see the blue, you don't see the purple. Chlorophyll is absorbing it, right? That's the wavelengths. Those are the photons that get incorporated into the glucose molecule, not the greens, right? Um, but it's cool because that's where all the energy is anyway. Speak. In like fall, why do the leaves start Ah, stay tuned, my young Padawan, stay tuned, right? <laughs> It's an excellent question, right? So um, the greens are not being absorbed, right? Um, there's either not a bond out there that can even cope with them, there's not electrons and energy levels in the chlorophyll molecule that can either cope with them, or they are, and those, those electrons just bounce up to a higher energy level and then bounce right back down again and throw the green back off, right? So whatever is the case, chlorophyll just can't, it just doesn't roll with green, okay? It just doesn't work that way. So. Uh, but like I said, it's okay because, you know, it can, it, this is what it really, really is the most useful thing out there. This really high energy blues um, is, is able to absorb just fine. Okay. Now, there are accessory pigments in the leaves all the time. Okay. These accessory pigments, um, you can look at them. They kind of look like this. Um, they're obviously something that's going to be a lot cheaper to make. Right. They lack the intricate complexity of chlorophyll. They don't have weird... Um, weird metals in the middle of them, like magnesium and things like that. It really is just a hydrocarbon ring with a long carbon tail off of the end of it, right? Um, things like carotenoids, phycobilins, right? Um, all these pigments, right, that the plant can use for photosynthesis, but they absorb different wavelengths. These uh, cheaper pigments 
uh, do not absorb as much of the purple and the blue as the chlorophyll does. It can actually absorb some of the green, which is okay, right? What it cannot absorb, right, are the oranges and the yellows. You can see where I'm going with this, right? Um, so let's say, now we could, we could, we'll do two things today in lab. We'll go, we'll go outside for a few minutes in lab and we'll do two different things, right? We'll dredge some critters out of the lake and look at them in a microscope. And we'll also look at some trees, okay? It's a good day to do that, this being uh, the end of October. You go outside, you see these trees are getting less and less green. They're getting more and more orange and yellow, right? There's a beautiful maple right out here in the parking lot where I get to park because I'm faculty where you don't get to park, right? And it's absolutely stunning. A lot of red, orange, yellow, things like that. Uh, and so what's going on here? That chlorophyll is kind of not cheap to make, right? Um, it's large and it's complex and it has a lot of weird molecules into it, right? Um, the tree would probably prefer to not lose that year after year and have to make it. Usually, when it starts getting cool outside and the days start getting shorter, the tree will start to pull that chlorophyll actually into the trunk, okay? It'll pull it out of the leaves. And what it will leave behind are these El Cheapo expendables. Okay, um, so you can get a little bit more energy out of the sunlight that is now fleeting because it's getting cold and dark outside. Um, but you don't want to lose your good chlorophyll, right? You can just recycle that and use that next year. If you lose some of these cheapo carotenoids, hey, that's fine. You can always just kind of remake those, okay? Um, so when you start pulling those greens, okay, um, or when you start pulling that chlorophyll out of those leaves, what's less left behind are the pigments that are reflecting and not absorbing the oranges and the yellows and things like that, right? So um, we, just, we just learned about temperate seasonality and why trees do the things that they do, right? It's all about what photons get absorbed and used and which ones get reflected back off into space, okay? Um, and now the trees are starting to pull in their chlorophyll and what they're leaving behind are the carotenoids, the phycobilins, uh, the anthocyanins that are taking in some green, okay? So you're not seeing green any longer, but they are not absorbing the yellows and the oranges and things like that. What I always thought would be neat, right? And you actually can see these sometimes, right? They're, they're not very common around here. You can, sometimes you can see trees that have leaves that have really, really strange colors. Like, um, it'll be red, like, year-round, right? I've never seen a blue tree, but I can't think of a reason why you couldn't, one couldn't exist in nature, right? Um, discover some sort of pigment, right, where it absorbs all of this kind of stuff up here, but it doesn't absorb the blue, and you would see a blue tree. Would the same thing happen with flowers? Okay. Um, flowers are not photosynthetic in the strict sense, right? Um, they're a modified leaf, right? Um, the pigments in flowers tend to do other things. I don't think there's actually a photosynthetic role in the flower. But there aren't blue flowers either, right? That's sort of the gold standard of uh, people trying to make a blue rose, right? They're, that's essentially the, you know, the thing that rose breeders aspire to is, is the blue rose, which there seem to be none of. So I have a question for you then. Knowing what you now know about light and the nature of light and color and things like that, what color is your shirt if I turn off the light? Or dark gray. Does your shirt have color if I turn off the light? No, it doesn't, right? Color only exists when photons are present, right? Does that blow your mind? <laughs> so you see this, right, in the fall, right? You start seeing those accessory pigments once the chlorophyll starts to get pulled in. See, there's a relationship between quantum electrodynamics and photosynthesis. You just had to wait for it, right? It all makes perfect sense. Uh, 
Anytime that a slide at the bottom says you must know this equation, right, um, you can look forward to that on the next exam. You must know this equation. And it is a balanced equation, right? There's as many carbons, hydrogen, oxygens on one side as there is on another. This is the photosynthetic equation. This is what we're actually doing, okay? Take 12 molecules of water, all right? Combine them with six molecules of carbon dioxide. Add photons of the appropriate wavelengths. What you will end up with is six molecules of oxygen, six molecules of water, and one, one molecule of glucose. The photosynthetic equation. I have never had a biology 101 exam um, where I didn't have a student regurgitate this eventually. Right? Know it. Know it. So as I was talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about energy and energetics and things like that, these things on this side of the equation, right, um, if you look at how much energy exists within them, these things over here have more energy in total than these things over here. So the question then again is, of course, where did the extra energy come from, right? That's where the photons come into it, right? Um, the products of fusion and stellar, uh, and stellar objects that are throwing those off into space, the photons are, are being absorbed by the chlorophyll and those accessory pigments to make up the energetic difference between this side of the equation and that side. Good? Yep. I mean, how much easier does it get? Memorize this, you know, winter was all your classes were that easy. No thinking involved. I press the button and the photosynthetic equation comes out. That's where we need to be. I could flip the reaction in the other direction, right? I could flip that arrow on the other side, right? That would change this from the photosynthetic reaction to the aerobic respiration reaction, right? Um, it's the exact same thing, just in reverse. So you breathe out carbon dioxide and water vapor, okay? Um, what you consume is oxygen, water, and glucose. Okay, what the plant with the chloroplasts, anything that is photosynthetic is gonna do, they're gonna take the carbon dioxide in the water and they're gonna put it back together again into the glucose and the oxygen and the water. All right, so this is just the opposite of what we talked about in the last lecture. So just take last lecture, um, flip it in reverse, right, and listen to it again, and that'll be photosynthesis. Uh, details. All right. Uh, okay, we can talk about this a little bit. Um, I don't want to belabor plant anatomy too much, um, really pretty much not at all. Um, if you take biology 102, right, uh, which I know some of you are going to do uh, with me, hopefully, um, uh, you'll be talking a lot more about plant anatomy. There's an entire plant anatomy segment that we do in biology 102, so I don't want to belabor it too much, right? But I do want to just give you enough to get a, a good sense of where this photosynthesis is actually happening, all right? Um, I oftentimes get kind of lazy, and that's perfectly understandable. When we think about photosynthesis, we think about trees, okay, that are doing photosynthesis. It's not the tree that is doing photosynthesis, and it's not the grass that's doing photosynthesis. It's not the flowers. It's not, you know, all, all the stuff you see outside. It's the chloroplast, right? The chloroplasts are what is doing photosynthesis. Um, it's not your cells. It's not you that's doing aerobic respiration. It's not um, your cat that's doing aerobic respiration. It's your mitochondria that is doing aerobic respiration. So get a good sense of where this is actually happening, right? All the things that are happening in your cell that are not mitochondria, right, are sort of supplementing and providing raw materials to the mitochondria. But in the mitochondria is where the aerobic respiration specifically happens, much like in the plant. All the big plant cells and things like that might be doing things, 
right, to accentuate and make materials available for the chloroplast, but ultimately it is a chloroplast 100% that is making this photosynthesis happen. So all the little green dots that you can see when you look at any plant cell under a microscope, right, those are the chloroplasts. That is where photosynthesis is actually happening, okay. Um, the actual structure of the chloroplast looks like this. As you know, just like mitochondria, it's double membraned. We talked about that however many months ago, right? Um, there are a lot of little kind of frisbee-shaped, literally frisbee-shaped, disc, interconnected disc-like structures called thylakoids, okay? Um, it is within those thylakoids inside of the chloroplast that photosynthesis happens, okay? Um, on that membrane right there, okay, is where the actual process of energy conversion from uh, electromagnetic radiation and CO2 into glucose will happen. So thylakoids are kind of important. Um, what actually happens, right, in these thylakoids for photosynthesis, uh, remember how aerobic respiration was a three-stage process? It's kind of like glycolysis, Krebs cycle, electron transfer chain. Yeah, photosynthesis is a two-stage process, okay? There are the light-dependent reactions, okay, or we can shorthand them and just call them the light reactions, okay? which require light to work, all right? So these light-dependent reactions are only going to be happening while the sun is shining on the plant, all right? The other part of it, right, are the light-independent, or I usually refer to them as the dark reactions, okay? And these reactions over here can happen 24 hours a day as long as all the raw materials are present, all right? The light-dependent reactions, as you can see from the sunlight shining down here, the light-dependent reactions are the reactions where photosynthesis is, is essentially initiated. It's where the chloroplast and the, the, the chlorophyll is absorbing those photons of radiation and actually converting the, the photons into chemical bond energy, all right? That chemical bond energy will then be carried over to the light-independent reactions where the CO2 is used Okay, um, and this light-independent reactions, that's where the glucose is actually constructed, right? So in the light-dependent reactions, that's where the photons are captured and converted into chemical energy. On the light-independent reactions, that's where that chemical energy is conformed into the glucose molecule, okay? Stored as by taking carbon dioxide and bonding them together, right, to make, um, to make glucose, any sort of sugar, okay? So we'll go through each one of these um, in turn. You can already see a couple of interesting things on here, uh, some of which you recognize, some of which you don't. Here's ATP and ADP again, right? So we think about ATP being something that mitochondria make and mitochondria do. You also make ATP in photosynthesis as well, or I should say the chloroplast does, right? So ATP in plants is the same ATP as you get in, in animals and fungi and things like that. So ATP, you're familiar with ATP. There's this other thing though, NADPH. This look like anything that you've seen before? Yeah, NADH, it looks a lot like that, except it has a P in it, right? Um, it's, a, it's very, very similar to NADH. Um, it's used for the exact same way, right, that NADH is, but it has another phosphate stuck on the end of it, right? So um, if you want to keep them straight, um, the P, right, stands for plants, right? So if you're talking about your, your electron carrier, okay, that you're going to use to carry high-energy electrons around, and you're talking about a plant, right, then it's NADPH. Right? If it's a mitochondrial process, then you'll just say NADH or FADH2, depending on which one you're going to use. Right? So in photosynthesis, the only one that you're going to use is NADP, which when it's carrying the electron is going to be NADPH. 
All right, so that's again your bucket that you're using to carry those really high energy electrons around. All right. The uh, actual part of the chloroplast that is absorbing um, the, the, uh, the photons of light is referred to as a photosystem. Okay, um, it is really kind of an elegant three-dimensional arrangement of chlorophyll molecules. So each one of these kind of, uh, here's a little square thing and a little chain hanging off the end of it. These are all of the chlorophylls, okay? Um, if you remember the chlorophyll, it has kind of the big kind of flat square sitting on the top of the magnesium in the middle and the long chain coming off of the end of it, right? Um, well, you've ever seen a, a, a lizard bask in the sun, right? They don't kind of look at the sun kind of head on, do they? Do they? No, they don't. They kind of get side on, right? Um, and expose as much of their surface area as they can to, those, to that electromagnetic radiation to warm yourself up very, very quickly, right? Um, that big flat tennis racket shape of that chlorophyll molecule is kind of used in the same way. You know, it's a big flat thing that can, you can face directly at the sun and it can absorb a lot of those photons all at once. Once that photon hits that tennis racket side of it, then, okay, that energy can kind of vibrate uh, and the electron um, that is now energized can get passed down that tail um, to the photosystem itself, which is really nothing more than just a big series of enzymes that's gonna pass that electron around and do interesting things with it, okay? There are two photosystems, okay? Um, the easy thing about it is that they're named photosystem one and photosystem two. The bad news is that photosystem two happens first and photosystem one happens second, right? So it can't all be easy, right? There's gotta be something kind of goofy in the mix, right? Um, the convention of photosystem one and photosystem two is obviously not named after the order of events. It was named in the order of discovery. So photosystem one was discovered, right? Long before photosystem two was. So yeah, there it is, unfortunately, okay? But here we have a thylakoid right here, okay? So this is one of our nice frisbees inside of the chloroplast. All right, um, and here is some photons of light coming down, shining on that thylakoid. And it's hitting some of these chlorophyll molecules in here, and they're absorbing some of these photons. And some of these electrons are getting bounced up to higher energy levels, right, um, in some sort of quantum jumping kind of way, quantum leaping kind of way, okay? That uh, electron of that energy is dished off onto the photosystem. And a lot of that initial energy that you shine on that, on that chloroplast, okay, that is, that is absorbed by the chloroplast, is used to take a water molecule, okay, and split it apart into oxygen and hydrogen ions, okay? You need to do this. Eventually, you're going to start taking an electron and you're gonna shove an electron down through the rest of this process, right? You need to have an electron available to absorb this photon that you're passing around right, um, and to eventually make a chemical bond out of. So you need to get an electron from somewhere, okay? You get the electron from water, okay? So what's happening here, photosystem two is taking that water molecule apart to harvest the electrons off so it can carry that photon, okay? You need to put that photon into something, right? And you put it into an electron and you get that electron from water, all right? So why do you water your plant, right? You have to put water on it every once in a while, you know, yes? You do, okay, you do, right? That water is used uh, by the plant to harvest electrons, right, to, to carry that photon of, uh, of energy that it just absorbed in its photosystem too, okay? Um, that splitting of water happens inside the thylakoid, all right? So then what you end up with is a molecule of oxygen, okay, which is immediately gonna be released. We say that plants produce oxygen, right? We do? Yes, yes? well, there it is, right? That's where it comes from. 
okay, when plants are producing these oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis. It's the very first thing that's happening, okay, is the release of this oxygen from that splitting of the water molecule. Um, it is nonpolar, right? It's very electronegative, but it's bonded to itself. So it's nonpolar covalent bond, right? So it can diffuse through this phospholipid bilayer of which the thylakoid is made. Okay, so the oxygen is gonna go ahead and diffuse out. The hydrogen ions are not, are they? No, they are charged, right? They cannot diffuse across this membrane. So the oxygen is gonna go ahead and leak out and diffuse out, the hydrogen ions are gonna stay behind, which means the inside of this thylakoid is gonna start getting really, really acidic. Right, you're gonna start getting a buildup of hydrogen ions inside of it, the pH is gonna to start to drop. Don't forget about the early stuff, like pH and acidity, right? So then what you're gonna do, right, you're gonna take that electron, which now has a fair bit of energy into it, right? Some of that energy went into splitting that water molecule apart, some of it was actually absorbed by the electron, and you're gonna pass it through a brown glob, okay? A brown glob, in this case, is an electron transfer chain, just like we had in the mitochondria. What did we do with the electron transfer chain in mitochondria? We took energy out of the electron, and we did what with it? We took a hydrogen ion from the environment, right, and we shoved it across a membrane. Remember our performance art from last time? Yeah. Anybody else remember our performance art from last time? Yes? We had three people in the front of the room, and they did stuff for us. Who was part of that process? You were part of it? Marjorie, were you part of it? Or I guess the other people aren't here, wow. We'll have to make another electron transfer chain. Uh, well, if you remember any of that, right, uh, we got to see these three people passing this electron down from one person to another, and as the, they pulled energy out of that electron, they were passing uh, a hydrogen ion from one side of a membrane to another. And in this case, right, we're adding hydrogen ions from the outside of the thylakoid and we're passing them to the inside. So we're getting a really good buildup of hydrogen ions on the inside of this thylakoid. Those hydrogen ions are coming from two different places, right? Those hydrogen ions are coming from the buildup of hydrogen from splitting water, and they're also coming from the electron transfer chain over here, okay? So there's a lot of hydrogen building up in here, okay? Um, when we had that buildup of hydrogen in the mitochondria, what did, we did, what did we then do with it to make ATP? We went ahead, we let it diffuse through ATP synthase, remember that? Which turned the crank, which made a lot of ATP. Okay, the exact same thing is gonna happen here. Okay, so we make a voltage, we build up our thylakoid charge like a battery. Okay, and then we let the hydrogen ions pass through the ATP synthase, turns the crank, makes the ATP. So this is where our ATP is coming from for photosynthesis. We're not done with this electron. It still is going to do work for us. We are then going to dish this electron off to photosystem one. Okay, where we are then going to hit it with another batch of photons from the sun. We are going to re-energize the electron. We're not through with this electron yet, okay? Um, once we re-energize that electron, we are then going to take it in this really highly energized state and we are going to dish that electron off to the carrier, NADP, and make a molecule of NADPH, okay? So we're done with the sun after that. We have all the energy that we're gonna absorb. Um, a lot of it's in the ATP over here. A lot of that energy is in the NADPH. We're gonna take the ATP and the NADPH and we're gonna ship it over to the dark reactions, okay, to the dark side of the force, right? 
okay? And then we're gonna use those fuel sources. We're gonna use that ATP. We're gonna use the high energy electron in the NADPH to build a molecule of glucose, okay? So this all whole process here is about taking that photon energy, okay, and storing it as chemical energy somewhere. Once you store it as chemical energy, that's kind of the hard part, right? Once you store it as chemical energy, you can just sort of dish it around to other places as pre-existing chemical energy. And like I said, in this case, you make a molecule of glucose out of it. So you use this energy to grab some carbon dioxide and sort of stick them together, right? And, and make carbon-carbon bonds out of. Uh, incidentally, ATP synthase looks like this. It is one of the uh, largest, most completely known proteins uh, to exist. Where, when I say completely known, I'm talking about we know what every amino acid in the entire thing is and, and where it is, and it's complete three-dimensional configuration because it's so astoundingly important, okay? It's a good example of quaternary structure, okay? Each one of these different colors here represents a different tertiary domain, okay? So it is, it's a pretty good-sized thing, right? But it really does kind of look like uh, the cartoon version of it like this, right? Um, the protons will go in the bottom side inside of this kind of a tunnel shape. It will kind of go through the top, and in doing so, the top of the thing will spin around, okay? And when it spins around, it'll grab an ADP and a phosphate, and it'll slam them into each other, right, with enough kinetic energy to actually get them to bond chemically, making ATP, right? So it's another energy conversion. It's diffusion of hydrogen ions resulting in kinetic energy, which results in energy being conferred into a new covalent bond, which is kind of neat. Thusly. Okay. So if we want to think about these light reactions for a little bit longer, right, we can think about them um, in terms of where the energy is and how much energy is actually in that electron. I'll show you the really cartoon, cartoony version in a bit. Right? So here's our initial electron that we're getting from water. Not a lot of energy in it. Okay? We're going to hit it with some photons and we're going to increase the energy of that electron. We're then gonna pass that electron down a transfer chain. That energy is going to get used to bring more hydrogen ions inside of the thylakoid, okay? But then that electron is going to be spent of its energy. It's going to be depleted. So we are going to hit it with another batch of photons in photosystem one. Mm. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're gonna re-energize it and we're just gonna dish it straight off into NADP to make our NADPH. So the activities of photosystem two tends to produce ATP. The activities of photosystem one tends to produce NADPH, right? So they're kind of doing similar things in terms of their activity, but they have very different ends, right? Photosystem two is used to produce that ATP. Photosystem one is being used to produce NADPH. What does it mean when I say it twice? <laughs> Compare and contrast photosystem one and photosystem two, right? I mean, you can see it coming from a mile away. Right, Kelly? <laughs> we laugh. Okay, so here's the absurdly cartoony version of the exact same thing, right, in, in mechanical terms. I'll throw this at you as many ways I can, right? Um, here's big burly man over here with his enormous photon hammer. He has a very low energy electron. It has very little potential energy because it's down there on the ground. In a carnivalesque sort of way, um, he is going to smack it uh, and sling that electron up to a high energy state, okay? We are then 
we are then going to, because this is an equal opportunity employer, this uh, female worker up here is going to roll that electron down the hill, right, spinning the little mill, ATP synthase, right, to make the ATP. Our electron has now lost its potential energy, so we're gonna get another burly guy to smack that electron again and fling it back up to a very high energy level, right? Um, where this individual is gonna take that high energy electron and is gonna dish it off into NADPH. Okay, so we now have our NADPH bucket where it's just carrying the high energy electron and we also have a bunch of ATP that we made in this part of the process over here. Could I be any more clear than this, right? I've told you the same thing <laughs> four times now, right? Um, there's a lot going on in the light reactions, right? Um, that electron's getting a lot of use. It's getting a lot of use. Speak. Which makes more ATP, the mitochondria? Mitochondria, for, for, well, it's hard to, it's hard to say, well, right? Oh, I know what you mean, right? And I'll, I'll answer it this way. I'll, I'll end with this and I'll answer it this way. Uh, we'll get into the dark reactions uh, first time, first thing on Monday. Um, to make one molecule, well, if you, if you completely aerobically respire one molecule of glucose, you get 36 ATP, yeah. right? Um, to make one molecule of glucose, um, we'll, you will use 18 ATP, okay, and 12 NADPH, right? Um, there's going to be more energy in those 18 ATP and those 12 NADPH than there will be in the one molecule of glucose, because there has to be, right? Because no, these reactions are not 100% efficient, right? But it, it does take, I mean, if you're thinking about how much ATP, I get 36 ATP out. It takes at least 18 going in to make that glucose in the first place, plus 12 more NADPH, right? So there's a lot of, 12 of these things, right? Um, that's a lot. Right, so you're talking about splitting, you know, 12, 13 molecules of water to make one molecule of glucose, right? So there's a lot of splitting, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of chemical reactions that are going on here. There's a lot of photons being absorbed to make this one molecule of glucose, right? Um, I mean, to make one ATP and one NADPH, you have to use both photosystems, so you're at least absorbing two photons, probably more. Right, um, so it, it's not a cheap process, right? I mean, a lot, of, a lot of energy is getting absorbed and converted to make that glucose molecule, right? And then you're recklessly consuming it, right? And recombining it in the other direction and wasting most of that, right? You're getting, what, what do we say, 39% out of it, right? So it's a uh, photosynthesis. I mean, when we get to uh, the dark reactions on Monday, you'll see that a lot of that energy that goes into the Calvin-Benson cycle is just to keep the cycle going in the first place, right? After you go ahead and, and make the glucose molecule, you have to invest a lot of energy into it just to reconstitute your, your, your starting products on that cycle, right? Um, it's a horribly inefficient process, right? There's a lot of carbon going around that thing. It takes 36 atoms of carbon to make one glucose molecule and to reconstruct all the original materials that you need. You know, it's not cheap at all. Right, it's an enormous amount of resources and energy used to make one glucose molecule. So, uh, a heck of a lot more energy goes in than comes than, than is captured in the glucose molecule for sure, right? And when you combust the glucose molecule in your mitochondria, a heck of a lot of that energy is wasted, and a fleetingly small amount of it, right, actually gets incorporated into ATP, and a fleetingly small amount of that actually gets converted into something biologically useful to you. We're just barely skating by here, you know. This is not efficient stuff, but it works. Um, because the sun is producing an enormous amount of 
radiation, right? Um, so if you'd like to evaluate me, I would appreciate that. Um, was that a scintillating lecture? Yes? Did it bore you to tears? Because I, I don't want to evaluate you. I, I don't want you to evaluate me if you didn't like it. One of the lessons I learned long ago, never have students evaluate you when you give back an exam.